Cowabunga dudes and welcome to the Rolling Ball, the Leicester Tigers fans podcast coming to you today with a sickening sense of deja vu combined with probably, if we're being honest, a bitter sense of inevitability about it all. Doesn't make the pill any tastier to swallow. Elliot, mate, how are you? Well, I presume me and you are uh, just ready to announce our candidacy for, you know, joint head coach <laughs> for for Tigers, considering there's enough, me- there's enough roles no. going. No, 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 no. Because we've got another announcement to make. Uh, unfortunately, we have been picked up by the RFU as being England's official, unofficial fans podcast. Um, again, just completing the route of all things Leicester Tigers. So we'll be joining Steve and Kev and Wiggy and Alid um, over there very soon. And and you'll be able to find us um, churning out nonsense on Mondays about England instead. <laughs> Really, only uh, ones left that haven't been picked up. Us and Welford. Yeah, and we're the cheapest as well. I know. I know. All it would took some Monster Munch and some Tiger Beer and we'd have gone. Yeah. Yeah. Very good point. Um, mate, uh, well, we'll get into it um, very shortly, of course. But how are you? Good weekends uh, all aside. I mean, obviously, Six Nations, Merry Sixmas, as everyone calls it, which I'm, I'm not sure. I, I treat that with the same disdain as you probably do with the popcorn um, thing when Tigers are announcing signings. Popcorn Sixmas, equally of the same um, terrible phrases that should be consigned to the bin. But I live with it. It's, it's, the, it's the patience I have with the world. But no, it was a good weekend, actually. Really enjoyed it. Some fantastic um, rugby, to be fair. I thought it was an um, opening weekend for the Six Nations. I thought it was fantastic. And all three games were great to watch. I think all of us who sat and, in- and watched it enjoyed it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, obviously, the, as an Englishman, the... <laughs> the Calcutta Cup game was a bit of a sickener uh, and I was very grumpy about it but I suspect for the neutral it was very good to watch and I think there was some good stuff there from England and, and some absolutely stunning attacking rugby from Scotland it has to be said so you know credit where it's due we'll have a quick chat about that as well uh, I was seen uh, on the rugby pitch again turns out I'm such a fair weather player now that not only do I not train but I also don't play in the months between December through to um, February because, you know, it's cold and wet. You're basically like all the Brazilian footballers that go missing from November through to March and basically <laughs> give, you, give them a warm day and a hard track and they suddenly turn up. You're basically the uh, the rugby equivalent of uh, of that. But how did you get on, Mike? Oh, well, thank you very much for asking, Elise. It's almost like um, we've pre-recorded another segment where I've mentioned it. No, we... Uh, uh, we won 17-0 in an absolute classic. You know, this is the thing the RFU are keen about, you know, getting people through the doors. And if there'd have been a couple more offloads, um, I'm sure that we would have had a full house coming to watch us. But as it was, it was usual, just the injured blokes and a couple of dog walkers who had stopped by. But no, we won 17-0. Good defensive performance. We were on our own line a few times. Uh, I played 12, which I was much happier with rather than fly half. Uh, it's a bit soft for the first 10 minutes. Then I got punched in the face and that tended to uh, sort of wound me up a little bit and I was I was all right for the rest of it. It wasn't too bad. How many red cards did you give away? <laughs> I gave away none. I did I did for the first time having slagged off high tackles, the high tackle rule. I gave away my first high tackle rule, uh, high tackle penalty uh for about eight years. Um but this from, is what uh, I meant. How many this how many if if you were playing the new rules from uh from the summer, how many red cards would you have been given if you tackled like you did? Uh, I reckon two solidly. So this one definitely because I uh, was going for the chest and I hit off fly half. It was also going for the chest and I sort of bounced up. Friendly ricochet- fire. Friendly yeah, I, fire. I, I, sort of rico- I sort of ricocheted into the guy's sort of chin. It wasn't a hard shot and he had enough time to moan to the ref about it. So I got a warning. 
Uh, and then the uh, and then the next one, I went straight in on the ball and ripped it, which of course would be illegal um, under the new rules. So again, it was a mixed bag on that front. Uh, main thing I was happy about was I got one conversion. I was uh, only I only took one conversion. So I was one for one hundred percent, and it was from the right hand touchline. Whilst a regular kicker was getting some treatment uh, right in front of all my teammates, winding me up, telling me I had absolutely no chance with it. It was the best kick I've ever done in my life. And Matt Dent, who said, sent an email to this podcast saying, make sure you start doing celebrations. I even remembered to give it the full um, archers, pull back and uh, release after it. I doubled back to make sure it dropped over the crossbar, but it did. I was very happy with that. You have no shame. I have absolutely no shame whatsoever. <laughs> I mean, I'm in the twilight of my career and all things staying the same. I'll be retiring at the end of this year if the new laws come in. So, uh, I might as well make a complete twat of myself as much as I can. Um, very quick shout out uh, as well. We want to go and give one to somebody who left a very nice review, very um, brief and to the point, but Moat Joy left a lovely review on Apple, five stars and said, new to this podcast, absolutely love it. Well, there you are. Simple, straight to the point. Basically the opposite to how we are, which is convoluted and chatting nonsense, but hey-ho. But I say no Tigers game to report on, but that doesn't mean we've not got stuff to waffle on about. We're very lucky to be joined later on by Sam Lana. Um, there's anyone who's on social media will know him that he's uh, a rugby data expert and he's going to talk to us about how clubs use the data and what Tigers might be looking for in the new head coach, uh, an issue that's maybe thrust more into the spotlight today. As always, we'd love it if you could leave a review. So please leave us one on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. Or to get in touch, you can tweet us with our handle at RollingMallPod or email us at therollingmall at outlook.com. Before we crack on, a quick thank you to our sponsors, St. Martin's Coffee Roasters, who are helping us put this all together. St. Martin's Coffee Roasters are a small team of coffee professionals, proudly born and bred in Leicester. Family owned and operated, they've been dedicated to perfecting the art of coffee roasting for the past 10 years, solely focused on sourcing, roasting and supplying some of the world's best specialty coffee to their customers across Leicestershire and the UK. They're passionate Tigers fans and St. Martin's have long-standing connections with the club and are proud to help caffeinate the players and staff in their efforts on and off the pitch. In an effort to help the fans wake up on match days, St. Martin's Coffee Roasters are offering 20% off all coffee when listeners use the code ROLLINGBALL, that's all one word, on their website. So visit stmartinscoffee.co.uk to stock up on locally roasted specialty coffee and use the code ROLLINGBALL, all one word, to save 20% off your next purchase. Right, time for the beep, 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 beep news section. And, well, we were going to start with some Tiger Watch and perhaps a little bit of transfer, rumour, pie-in-the-sky sort of stuff. But as it turns out, my tardiness and our decision to record on a Tuesday has finally paid dividends. It also explains why, when I was uh, chasing up Bondi to see if we could get any of the players on uh, to record today, and I was chasing up Vicky McQueen as well to see if we get any of the women's players, uh, that I was said, ah, oh, they won't be doing any media today. Now we know. <laughs> well, uh, for, for once, Bondi did us a solid. Because the, normally... normally he, did, he did do it deliberately. He's in Australia on holiday, so he was ignoring me, trying to have a nice time. And I've been winding, I've been annoying him for the last sort of three days, saying, oh, can we have a player? Can we have a player? He's like, fuck off, nobody's getting anything. <laughs> anyway, now we know why. But at least, like, at least he's actually done us, whether we meant to or not, he has done us a solid by putting the news out there before we've recorded so we can actually talk about it rather than waiting for the 15 minutes after we've recorded and then drop something for us to, to look silly with. And we can finally, 
finally get in there and talk about it before Adam Whitty and the BBC lot. So, Adam, if you're listening, ha, 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 this is the first and probably the only time it's ever going to happen. But instead, uh, I'll tell you what, um, Ian Morton sent us a voice note to sort of summarise the situation, which is, of course, today the announcement that Richard Wigglesworth uh, and Aled Walters will be leaving to join Steve Borthwick in the England coaching setup at the end of the season, but ahead of the World Cup. So effectively, it'll be knives and forks down on the dinner plate as soon as this season finishes. Let's see what Ian's got to say about it before we comment on it. Evening, guys. Well, this is all a monumental pain in the arse, isn't it? Um, I'm just wondering about what happens going forward. What if our poor run does continue and Wigglesworth is unable to turn this round, is there a situation where we would be happy to release Wigglesworth early to join up with England? Perhaps the new head coach names his coaching team, which defines Brett Deacon's role, and maybe Brett Deacon picks up the reins between now and after the World Cup, if, as we suspect, it may be somebody who's currently in position with a World Cup team, um, that would perhaps allow some continuity between now and the end of the World Cup. Um, literally just a thought that came to mind in the last minute, but I wonder what you guys thought. Very good. Thank you, Ian, for that. Oh, actually, I thought he was going to talk more about, I suppose, the, the impact of them leaving, so we'd get ahead of ourselves. We'll come back to that in a second, Ian, but let's just quickly talk about them leaving first and the whole idea of it. It's not unexpected. I kind of expected it to happen. The timing of the announcement is something that surprises me. Yes, that was... Um, the re- when I read Andrea's uh, statement, there was two things I took from it. Firstly, the timing of it, I think, is really interesting. To me, this isn't announced... I know Andrea said in the statement that um, they're still for in, going through the process. To me, that's... I don't believe that. I don't think this comes out today unless we've got our ducks in a row. You cannot negotiate with a new head coach with this. If we're still, if it's still up in the air, you can't negotiate properly because effectively our, our chips are in. We've got, and there's, to play there's with. no need for England to announce it now either. Like no. the, England, as far as England were concerned, they're like, well, you know, you make the announcement whenever you feel ready. They could have got that. I have a sneaky suspicion Cock has needed to come out because Montpellier wanted to do an announcement. So that they're probably guided by that. Today, with, with Tigers, I don't see why they needed to come. That There's no need for Tigers or England to have to announce that today. That's, that's one to be, um, to have held on for another time, I'm, I'm sure. Um, like you, I'm, I'm not surprised by it. Um, Steve is very much like a mafia boss where he only trusts um, five or six people in this world. Um, Steve Corleone, I think he's a nice, got a nice ring to it. Uh, like in Goodfellas. Uh, but no, I think, look, Steve is, wants his own team in there. He wants people he can trust. I don't have an issue with that. You know, he's putting a project together. If you're put, if you're in charge of a project and you're, you're on the line for it, you're going to want as many of your own people in as possible um, to help get you there. And he clearly wants both. Walters has um, been there, done that. With South Africa, elite level coach, Wiggy is a guy that's learning the ropes and is someone that Steve trusts and is very much a Steve, you know, project coach. So again, whether that's right or that's wrong, you can see, understand the reasons what's going and, you know, they can, both men can hand in their notice, work their notice and the RFU don't have to pay us a penny for for doing so. So again, it, it ticks a lot of boxes. Yeah, and I'd like to 
take the chance now to address, I'd say, two of the negative reactions that have come out of this. I think that some fans have said that it's um, wrong of Steve Borthwick to come back and sort of raid the coaching staff. And whilst I can be frustrated about it, and I'm still pretty annoyed at the way the RFU have handled this, um, you know, it was something that they could have done, to be honest, six months earlier, um, or wait until after the World Cup. But the reality is, if I'm Steve Borthwick and I've been thrown into one of the most high-pressure jobs in the world, and I still maintain absolutely the correct decision of the club not to stand in his way, and I think that is a mark of the mutual respect between everyone. And I think that he is understandably going to want his most trusted lieutenants there. Now, Aled Walters, we know, is is a world-class proven operator of South Africa and what he did with us last season. Richard Wigglesworth is a bit interesting because, obviously, I don't know what his role will be with England, whether it will be an attack coach or perhaps a more narrow sort of skills or even halfback coach, whatever it may be. Certainly, you know, our attack hasn't been setting the premiership alight for the last couple of seasons, even when we were at our best. So, you know, it's uh, an interesting want to see how he fits into the England coaching squad. But from my perspective, no, I've got absolutely no issue with Steve Borthwick doing this. I think it's the right thing for him to do. It's the right thing for England to do. We already knew that we were going to have to go and replace our coaching team anyway. This effectively, if anything, if I'm going to try and put an optimistic spin on it, rather than trying to plug big gaps that we were doing before and not knowing how everything fits together, now you can say, right, that was the old team. We're going to bring in a new team now, and effectively, you you can almost not start again. But if they're not trying to, you're not going to have a natural clash of synergies because they can build it together. Obviously, with the help of senior coaches like uh, Brett Deacon, who will remain at the club. So that that's the first one I, I want to knock ahead. The second one I've heard a couple of people say is, "Oh, this kind of taints uh, the Premiership winning season uh, because they they haven't stuck around to create a legacy that it was sort of a a one off thing." Absolute nonsense. Uh, I could not disagree with that more. They turned us around from being, as I think you always like to call it, Elliot, the banter club. And all of a sudden, they've we got respectability in his first full season. We won the fucking league in the second full season. We've got a quality batch of young players signed up and committed to this club going forward. It is in great shape. I always say that the mark of a coach, if you want to talk about legacy... Is about leaving the club in a better position than when you found it. And Steve Borthwick has done exactly that, whether or not he takes the coaching staff with him. So fundamentally, I'm going to say, you know, everyone's entitled to opinion. But objectively, if you think that that season has been tarnished, objectively, you're wrong. Yeah, I agree with both points. I think the, on the first one, the anger needs to be aimed at the RFU and not at Steve or the club, neither of, of which this situation is their fault. Um this is a situation that the RFU have created by going too early or too late with Eddie, depending on how you want to see it. Uh, on the second one, Steve's legacy is, is intact in place of the, the squad of youngsters he's left behind. If you look at the likes of DK, Freddie Stewart, Rafael, the rest of them, he's took them from being um, youngsters with promise to you know, international players, at, some of which are very close to being world-class. You know, I include Freddie Stewart when I think when I make that statement. So, look, when we made the decision to go with Steve, we did so in the knowledge that eyes wide open, there is very much a chance at the end of three three years, he would be going to England. You know, when he started on July the 1st, 2020, we very much said at the time, the club said it's a three-year project. I have a sneaky suspicion that we were very, very aware that at the end of that three years, 
Steve would possibly would be going. I, and I knew that. I think I think I almost know for a fact that we accepted that it was a three-year project, and as long as he wasn't toilet, he'd be off with England again. Yeah, and I think we made we made that deal three years ago. Hmm. That this is the consequence of a state making that deal, and well, this is no, a deal no, that this, worked, this, this is a deal that's worked for everyone. Yeah. Well, this is a deal that's worked for everyone. Do you know? What I mean, this is the this is what I mean is that this has been an arrangement that's worked for everybody over the last three years. One slight tweak to that: we're supposed to be at the end of this season, quite not not halfway through, and that is the bit that is off plan, and that's the bit where I want to address again certain Facebook fans who jump on it and go say, "Where's the planning for this?" Because like, there is planning. But it was planning in accordance with what was expected, which was to July the first, ju- July the first, exactly for next season, which is basically what we were already interviewing for. And all of a sudden, the RFU pull the rug out from under us. You can't plan for that. You can't legislate for Eddie Jones all of a sudden becoming toilet and getting sacked six months out or eight months out from a World Cup. Nobody can plan for that. It's insane. But what the club has done is effectively managed to accelerate its plans as we understand it and to try and get something lined up ASAP. It has to be a sticking plaster solution for this next six months. If you are willing the club to go around and go and buy someone out of the last six months of their contract and spank all the money given the financial pressures they're under, that's the most irresponsible idea I've heard. And frankly, if if what they're doing now is getting the right person in at the right price, looking for the long-term sustainability of the club, make sure they're getting the right person in then uh, I'm all for it myself. Now, shall we go back to Ian's point, yes. which was, so we know Wiggy and Aled are going. Yep. And you were talking about, you know, the slight slump of form that we're on at the moment. Even regarding, the, or disregarding, I should say, the slump of form, is there an argument to say, should we say, thanks, lads, but off you go now. We want to kind of, we want people who are going to be here in the, the next few months. I think the answer to that will lie into the answer of the next question is who's going to be the next head coach? Because if you have, you may have a head coach, but if you don't have a team, I think you are going through unnecessary disruption. I think you, if you it's either all or nothing. You either go with Wiggy until the rest of the season. It might be difficult. Or if as soon as you, the new man and his team are ready to go, if that is the case, you know, if you get to a certain position where we're probably not going to be in the top four, um, we're out of Europe, you're just fulfilling fixtures. And if you've got a team ready to come in, then yes, you probably make that that call and at least give someone a head start. Um, but I think there's a lot of variables before you make that decision at this stage. Yeah, completely agree. Now, let's go and have a look at, I suppose, who might be in the frame to take the head honcho job. We said before we hit record, actually, the, almost the more interesting thing is the team that might come in under him. So let's go and have a look and see some of the, I suppose, the big wig names, though. Yeah. So this is these are what we think are the runners and riders of what we what we're looking to. And there's a couple we've mentioned previously um, on the podcast over the last few weeks. So you've got Dan McFarland, Vern Cotter, Paul Gustard, Gregor Townsend, David Rennie, Simon Middleton, and Leon McDonald and Sam Vesti. Very good batch of candidates there. And of course, now we're all set up for them picking out someone who we haven't mentioned at all and making us look like fools. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, find a coach who we've not mentioned, and they'll get they'll get the job. That's basically okay. the rule of thumb. Well, should we try and give like 30 seconds each? Well, not 30 seconds each, but let's just do 30 seconds on each coach. So why don't you go from the top? So Dan McFarland um, up at Ulster. Um, I guess the plus side would be July 1st. He's ready to go. Mm-hmm. He does have a team in place at Ulster, which he could potentially 
um, bring with him. The downside is he's contracted through to, I think, 2025. And I suspect the rest of the team would be as well, which means a lot of that money is gone. I suppose my concern is over the last few years, he's done some great stuff with Ulster. This season, they've been pretty inconsistent, to put it kindly. In fact, they've been quite poor. So you wonder about the success he's having with his team. Does he have the calibre to come over? Is he the calibre that we want? I'm not sure, but obviously that'll be for Andrew to determine during the interview process. Now, who's next? Yeah, so the next is Vern Cotter, mm. um, which, is, which isn't a name we were considering until a week ago. And he <laughs> mysteriously um, cashed in his chips with Fiji, citing for personal reasons. Just before the World Cup as well. Yeah. Now, there may well be personal reasons. That might be genuine. The cynic in me suggests that he's got a better offer on the table or there's he wants to make himself more available for a better offer on the table and is putting himself in a prime position to to be able to get it. Yeah, and it's an interesting one because Cotter's obviously had international experience, but he did go from Scotland to Montpellier uh, and he did pretty well with Montpellier. He obviously did had an extended run with Clermont where they were they did win the top 14. They were unofficially the best team in Europe for about four seasons, but never won it. Maybe there's something there, you know, about him always producing good teams but never be able to get over that sort of final hurdle. He was the one who really turned Scotland around from being a banter side to laying the foundations to what I think we've seen today. I think he'd be I think he'd be a big time signing. I think that he is he's tough as nails, he's a tough old Kiwi, but he appreciates the attacking dynamics. Side. He appreciates everything about the game that we appreciate at Tigers, but he adds an extra layer as well, I think, for you know, an eye for attacking flair that perhaps we've missed. So, again, depending perhaps a younger and more dynamic, because I think he's in his 60s now, not that age is a barrier to this, but a younger dynamic coaching team under him, that could be quite exciting. That was the point I would have made about um, Cotter. Is it feels a better fit. I think he would feel, yes. feels very Leicester yeah. um, in terms of that. The point I would have made is exactly that about the, the coaching line. There was a lot of young, vibrant coaches doing some really interesting things um, out there. And I think he would they would be benefit uh, from being under um, his sort of stewardship. He would also be able to possibly bring in a really interesting um, Southern Hemisphere attack coach, which I think could be, I think he would get Northern Hemisphere grunt up front. But I yeah. think he would understand that it needs to be a bit of Southern Hemisphere flair in the back line. And I think he would be someone to blend it's, that. It's not, it's not Southern Hemisphere flair you want anymore. It's Scottish flair. Less of that. Less of that. <laughs> I love, by the way, just very quick. Less of that, McCooper. <laughs> There's McMurver, who is the uh, the toast of Scotland at the moment. But I, I <laughs> randomly asked what you just reminded me of something as well. We're talking about young coaches. Uh, I was doing the late feed with the little one I shoved on the TV, and there was one of those Gordon Ramsay's uh, Hell's Kitchen. Is it Hell's Kitchen or Kitchen Nightmares? And he goes yeah. and turns the restaurants around. And every time he does the same and he goes, new, fresh, vibrant menu. Yeah. And he kind of goes around. It says, and that's basically what we want from the coaches. We want it, the Gordon Ramsay new menu, fresh, vibrant, delicious coach. Yeah. Sounds like a sign. <laughs> the way he talks, it's weird. He t- sounds like a soundboard of Gordon Ramsay. Anyway, so that's Vern Cotter done. Um, and I, I think for me, as it stands, I'd prefer him. He'd be my number one choice. And um, who, who is next on the list? Paul Gustard. Yes, and another good fit, I think, for Tigers. Uh, he obviously did fantastically well at Saracens and then did very well with England. It then went slightly toilet with Harlequins, but I think we've mentioned before, 
is that a personality clash with um a personality clash with Harlequins? And actually you look at what he's doing now with uh the Stade Francais defense, he's a very, very impressive resume. My only question is one, the personality clashes, uh, and two, his main success has been when he's been a bit more narrow and focusing on the defense. Can he expand it? Yeah, I, I, I get that. I think, like you say, the CV as an assistant coach or a defence coach only, his CV reads as one of the best around. You know, if you, if we were looking for a defence coach, you would be knocking on his door and saying, that's our number one choice. And you would you would like that. Like you say, Leicester and Gustard, if it was a better fit than Quinns and Gustard from a DNA perspective, uh, he would understand what Leicester's okay. about. He would bring an aggressive defence, which our boys are used to. So there's no real change in the defensive mindset or system. And he would be someone that would want to bring in a big forwards coach, look after the line out and understand the importance of a role in Mool. So he, they, there is a lot to like about Gustard. And I think it could work. Like you say, he's only the shadow or the question mark that's on or against him. It is one time as a head coach. It didn't work, but as we said, there's mitigating factors. So, to me, I think Gustard is a really interesting choice, and I wouldn't rule it out. There is um, compensation that would need to be paid to Stade Francais. I can't imagine it is substantial or a deal killer, but it's something just to be bare, uh, bore in mind. And again, he could be in, same as Vern Cotter, could be in charge of July the first. So, I think we also need to start mentioning this as well. Availability, Cotter could even come actually pretty quickly. To come back to Ian's point, Cotter could come earlier than than July. Yeah. Next one is Gregor Townsend, who I think is a... We've had the conversation about him before. I think he's a really interesting choice. Wasn't one who I immediately thought of back in December when Steve went. However, I didn't hate the idea when it was first touted or his name was linked with us. I think it could work. The question mark to me would be about would he understand Leicester enough and what Leicester's about? And I'd also want to see his coaching lineup in terms of forwards coach and who he gets in place. And the last point is about availability mm. because I can't imagine if, especially if they beat Wales on Saturday and they're two from two, I can't see Scotland binning him off now. I think they're, they're, <laughs> they're now, Scotland are now in with. Townsend until the World Cup, which would mean we ain't seen him until October, November time. If that is the case, I would want his entire coaching team in place July the 1st, and he's the last one to come after the World Cup. That would then rule out his defence coach, Steve Tandy, who's done yes. such a fantastic job with Scotland's defence as well. No, I, I agree. I think whilst someone like Cotter probably feels like the best fit in terms of mentality, I, I'd argue perhaps the most exciting option would be Townsend. Yeah. Again, I think I've said it before, you need to divorce the idea of Townsend as a player, sort of free-flowing, happy-go-lucky, a bit like Finn Russell from Townsend the coach. And actually, he does have quite a hard steel to how he coaches, what he demands of his players. And I think in that respect, he'd probably fit in quite well with Leicester. But it's obviously, he's he does know Tiger. So obviously, he works a lot at Northampton Saints, didn't he? So he will understand that aspect of the East Midlands rivalry from the other side of the fence. I think he'd be a really interesting option. But the big red flag for me is not being able to arrive here until after the World Cup. And the question you've got to ask yourself is, and it depends what other options are available, of course, is that delay 
which could mean that you're not really up and running until Christmas time, really. Is that delay worth it for the man? Um, if you could get somebody else in to start um, you know, the beginning of pre-season, uh, I'd argue if some of the options that we've discussed are available, I'd argue probably not. But I agree. I, I think but if that. he was if he was available July the first along with Cotter, um, I think I'd have him right up there as my sort of joint favourite. Yeah, I, I think that's all fair. Um, fair stuff. Next one is an interesting choice because I've this is more driven from the last twenty four hours more than anything. Is Simon Middleton, um, mm. who currently is and will be up until the end of the Women's Six Nations. The Red Roses head coach um, and has been for t- seven years, I think. 2015 is when he first took over. Um, a good record, a really good record, actually, in fact, of the Red Ro- Roses. Numerous Six Nations titles, numerous Grand Slams, two fi- World Cup finals, a 30-game winning streak. So his record at, at women's level is very, very strong. Now, the question that I would have with Middleton is and it's the one I posed yesterday because I think it's a, a genuinely a fascinating question and it's one I don't I do not know the answer to. Normally you go from men's rugby to women's rugby from a coaching perspective. That's normally what that's the route that seems to be more prevalent. Can you go from coaching elite level international women's rugby to men's club rugby, considering the games are vastly different? Not better or worse, they are just a different game of rugby. Yeah. And to clarify that, I think that if you look at the men's game, there's much more of a focus on the collisions. Uh, whilst women's rugby, obviously, there is a bit more of a focus, I think, on the technicality of the set piece, sure, but then also using space. Middleton's a really interesting option because he's clearly done a fantastic job when you look at it on paper. The players who have played under him cannot speak highly enough of him. He's obviously a fantastic man-manager and he works really well with coaches alongside him. And you don't, regardless of the level of opposition, you don't get that level of success consistently without having something good about you. My question about Simon Middleton, if I'm being cynical, is that the Six Nations, yeah, France have improved a lot over the last few years, but it's been basically pro team against am- amateur teams. Yeah. Um, so it's easy to point to all the Six Nations titles and Grand Slams, and then you look at the scores and there have been walkovers. The World Cup was... <sighs> The women did us so proud, so I do not want to sound like I'm sort of criticising them at all. And obviously they had a red card early in the final. But he said himself he'd be his record would be judged by the World Cup and they didn't win it. And if you were being critical, England didn't play their best rugby actually in that World Cup, I don't think. They became a little bit too reliant on them all, in my opinion. They were quite stuttery with their play out the back. Big, you know, green tick for Lewis Deacon, who was in charge of the line out on the ball. But... It, it wasn't enough when it came to the final. And so that would be my one question about Middleton, a- along with, like you say, the step from women's rugby to men's rugby. They're, they're different games. He hasn't been involved in the men's game for over a decade now. Uh, he did good stuff with Leeds, I think, before that. Um, and I think he got them into Europe at one point, if I remember rightly. So, you know, he he's clearly a talented coach, but the game's moved on in the men's game for 10 years. It'd be interesting to see whether or not he'd be able to translate it across. I I would support him if he came, but for me, he'd be a risk. I think that's a fair assessment, and that's where I'm at with him. I think it could work, but like you said, I think there's names in front of him who are better placed or in a better position. More, estab- more established, I think, is the fair yes. way of putting it. The last one, uh, well, last couple, actually. Um, Leon MacDonald is someone I don't know too much about. However, 
He is Auckland Blues um, head coach. His name has been mentioned a little bit in dispatches in the media in some instances. Not in major rugby paper, I think, had a couple of headlines start of the year about him. Um, it's an interesting choice if he is in, in the mix. X fly half, X12, X15. Um, doing some interesting things with Auckland Blues. He's got them playing some good rugby and winning stuff. I think they won the Super Rugby Altaria, was it, last yeah. year? Yeah, they're, yeah, they're certainly up and amongst it. Um, and I think got himself involved in some New Zealand sort of next level sort of coaching as well. So they're clearly regarded as a um, as a good coach. I can't say I know too much about him. However, the concerns I would have is Aaron Major Mark two in terms of yeah. New Zealand flair and bringing that into the um, premiership. I think that would be a concern, considering how reliant of the forward pack you have to be. And secondly, it is a, he doesn't know the Prem and he doesn't know our players. And he would eventually, to start on July the 1st, you would effectively have to go for a full season in Super Rugby. Yeah. And within seconds of that finishing, him and his entire family would have to up sticks, relocate to Leicester and hit the ground running on day one with expectation of our, us as fans going, right. You're here now, crack on. I think all of that into the mix would make me nervous if we went down that right direction. Yeah, I think he's a bigger risk than Middleton, I think, because I'd be, again, I'd support him if he came. Obviously, I'd support anyone if they came uh, within reason. <laughs> Maybe not Pat Lamb. Oh, or Matt O'Connor. I, think. <laughs> I was going to say, there's what I was going to say, Elliot, there's one name that we've left off on this list and that's Matt O'Connor. So, you know, this is where we get the big list and the big the big reveal is Matt O'Connor's back for a third stint, I imagine. Anyway, but with with McDonald, it, what he's done with the Blues is super impressive. They were kind of a bit of a flimsy, lazy side, to be honest, a few years ago. And now they, they are a tough side. They play very quick, expansive rugby in a proper Auckland Blues style. They, they've got their own DNA. If anyone can remember... Super Rugby in its heyday in sort of 2002. They had a backline that somehow evolved in the same team. I think they had Rokothoko, Howlett, Muliaina, and um, uh, Thao Thao, which is, I don't think they ended up putting Muliaina at centre just to fit them all in. It's it, absolutely ridiculous sort of fantasy rugby stuff. But they've, they have a different DNA, I would say, to Tigers. And he's clearly a very good rugby brain, but like you say, it is in completely a different rugby environment. It would be a big roll of the dice. Uh, and a, a, unless, of course, he's supported massively by um, very senior Northern Hemisphere coaches below him, but that might undermine him slightly. Right, anyway, who's next on the list? The last one, uh, Sam Vesti, is someone that we have mentioned, well, at the start of sort of this process back in December, we sort of mentioned uh, as maybe a possible. Given it some thought over the last sort of eight to ten weeks, the more I would say no to Sam Vesti. I love Sam Vesti as a player. I think he's one of the best attack coaches in England, if not further afield. What he's done with Saints in terms of their attacking game is fantastic. And the thought of Sam Vesti looking after our backline gets me really excited. However, when speaking to uh, Saints fans uh, who we're friends with, they are very much of the opinion that he is. That you would not believe that Sam Vesti ever played for Leicester, given how how much emphasis he puts in in terms of recruitment on the back line and how 
uh, much he wants the resources to be spent towards the back line rather than the forwards. Um, from our own experience of playing against Northampton over the last couple of years, we've dominated them up front. You know, and fair enough, we we had a bit of a slip up um, last week. But look, look, let's be honest, in the five games that we've played them, there's only once where they've really matched us up front. Most of the time we've had the edge uh, at top. And even when watching Saints over the last couple of years, again, they are a little bit, that's the weakness that you would, that you would target Agreed. every time. So for me, it would possibly work if you had an experienced DOR above him who was a hard-nosed forwards coach. Maybe if it was a Leo Cullen with Sam Vestia's um, head coach, yeah. I could sit, that's a world in which I could see that working. Given, you know, what's in a job title, it's different, I know, from place to place. But here, if you're going to be running the show, I don't see Sam Vesti as being the guy that would that would work for us. I'd agree. And I've just thought of two more names as well. They go on the list. So you just mentioned one, Leo Cullen. Uh, signed a new contract with Leinster. Oh, did he? Right, missed that. There you go. That's on the news. <laughs> okay, so that puts that one to bed. And the other one, which we have discussed earlier, and I think it's just no site we haven't included, is uh, Dave Rennie. How did I miss him off? That is really stupid. He's mix. one of the main ones. Sorry, my, I've even got it written down. So, God, my eyesight's weird. <laughs> that is bad. It is written down. God, I'm bad. Um, yeah, Dave Rennie. Um, Another one that we would have thought of, but only in the last month has sort of sprung into our brains. I, I'm i probably wrong. I have a sneaky suspicion that his departure from Australia would be too late for us. I have a sneaky suspicion we may have been further down the track with who we were speaking to. Um, could be wrong. And I'd like us to have um, reached out to Dave Rennie. I think he's a really interesting guy. We've both said that hard done by by Australia. We think he'd done some really good stuff considering the challenges and the injury list. Personally, he left Glasgow to go back to Australia for family reasons. If you you take that as, uh, if you believe him, the cynical, again, the cynic may say otherwise, but if you take him at his word, I can't see him coming back to the Northern Hemisphere unless it's for an international job. Yeah, I, I can see him perhaps eyeing up the Scotland job. To be honest, if Townsend is going to leave after the World Cup, yeah, uh, I think he's a fantastic coach. Really screwed over by Scott, um, really screwed over by Australia. Sorry, and I think that he would do a cracking job at Tigers. I agree with you. I just wonder whether it's come a bit too late, perhaps. But who knows? Maybe we do take what Andrea says at face value, and maybe we are still interviewing. In which case, maybe he is. On the on the cards, and and if he was going to come, then we'd have a bit like Cotter, one of the most established and respected names in world rugby, and that is very hard to turn your nose up at. So, I think perhaps less likely than Cotter, but just as just as prestigious if he did arrive, and we'll yeah, bring absolutely. and we'll bring many of the same values actually as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think if you look across all of those names we've mentioned, there are. I think all of them are very credible candidates. And I think considering the club gets a bit of stick for, oh, we always do things on the cheap. Rah, 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 clearly there is a bit of thought going on to some of these now. I don't, unless some, unless we are making absolute balls up of it now and there's someone let, completely left field out of those names that are, that we mentioned that we've not talked about gets, gets to call up and it's someone can proper nonsensical. If you, if so, I suspect what the next coach would be one of those names we've mentioned. And I think that would be a, a pretty credible candidate. As we said, the more interesting thing, well, certainly for me, the more interesting thing is about who comes in alongside as as, as part of the coaching team. 
because there's some really interesting coaches out there. You know, Jeff Parlin, you've mentioned, mm. Lewis Deacon. If yeah. Fair enough. I'd be about to suspect in Middleton. I'm probably more interested in Lewis Deacon than, than Middleton. Um, if you wanted to be really ambitious as a forwards coach, spend a bit of money and see if Paul O'Connell wants to um, be a forwards yeah. coach at a club. I think that's very unlikely. And I think he'd. Joe Worsley defence. Yeah, Joe Worsley's a coach that's out there. Um, so there's there's a lot of people out there doing some interesting things, like Scott, you know, Wise Mantle again is another coach that's available. Yeah. There's people knocking about in the industry who could come in as part of a wider team. I think we would, if we've got a bit of budget available, and we've got over the last few years with, with Borthwick, the club has invested in a coaching team. You know, Borthwick, mm. Walters, Sinfield. Well, this, the last few years pre- and the development of players proves get the coaching right and they will get the most out of your players. Yeah, absolutely. We've both said that this is a, we are an attractive prospect at the moment. We've got a good story to tell. We have a good squad, you know, 28, 29 core players that have been here for a while now. The new additions coming in are exciting. I think... There's a lot more in the academy. There's another 10, 12 that the club are really excited by. Whoever that gets the job, the club has got to... To me, it's the one that's got to take us through to the next World Cup. This is a four-year cycle, for the, or three-and-a-half-year cycle that they've got to take us through to, and we've got to get it right. I'd be comfortable with any of those names. There's, there's obviously a preference in terms of who I'd want out of there. But, Go on then. Who's your preference, and can, can you give me the head names? I'll tell you. What, I'll, whilst you're thinking about it, I'll give you my preference for head coach, and then the three main bods under him as well. Go for it. So we Cotter, head coach. Yep. Attack Scott Weismantle. Forwards, yep. forwards Jeff Parling. And defence Joe Worsley. That's all. That's all I want. You are a very funny man because it's not too far off. What I've got. I, I was um, hoping you were going to say you've got some insider knowledge. That's not too far off what Angela's just signed. No, 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 no imagine if I got a text message now. Sorry. Uh, no. I oh, have... Did I say Angela? That was stupid. Andrea. Oh. <laughs> uh, I am torn. I'd probably say Cotter or Gustard um, as head coach. If I went with Fern Cotter, the names I'd got written down for forwards coach would be one of Parlin, O'Connell, or Deacon. I had Wise Mantle in attack, and I would be okay or comfortable for the first 12 months at least with Matt Everard in charge of the defence and Brett Deacon in charge of the breakdown. Yeah. After, to, to allow some continuity between the old era of Steve and yeah. with Matt Smith as a as skills coach and Tom Harrison as scrum coach. I mean, Steve could come back for Tom. I mean, we're not. This isn't. We're not out of the woods yet. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we could be looking. And at that point, I'm, want, I'm wanting Boris Stankovic back. If we're going down that, if we oh, need yeah. a scrum coach, I want Boris back. But I think you've got to have allow a little bit of continuity between the old and the new. And I would, if it's Vern Cotter, who would be probably my first choice. Those would be the sort of I'd be looking for a, a certainly a forwards coach and then an attack coach. I'm comfortable after that. If it's Gustard, then it would just be about who's the attack and who's the forwards coach. Because I think mm. Gustard could. He'd take the defence himself, yeah. Yeah, and quite an obviously so. But those would be where I'm, I'm... But your choices, I would be, yeah, bang on board with. Well, let's wait and see. Right, let's just very quickly talk about the uh, how the boys did Tiger Watch, uh, England and Wales. Tommy Raphael came on and was much better, I thought, than Justin Tipperick. 
straight yeah. off the bat. He's the best Welsh seven, so that's no surprise. Sort of stemmed the flow and actually provided a breakdown threat, which you have to do against Darwin. And Tipperick didn't do that in my book. Weirdly, because considering how much of a breakdown North he wants, he was against us. I found it very strange that Tipperick not he, once really got. He doesn't do it, it so much for Wales. He's more of a sort of a ball handling seven, isn't he? He's more of like a link man that they like him in the wider channels as opposed to being, you know, the, the breakdown dickhead that. Um, Tommy Raffel is now for England obviously gutting loss well played Scotland I thought bloody Ben White <laughs> whenever he sort of plays against us now he really he tends to have a stormer so fair play to him uh, for doing so well with with you know strong Scottish ancestry there I'm sure but we've got um, obviously for England you know, Freddie Stewart um, went pretty well absolutely smashed off to uh, Peloto in the first few minutes which was good didn't really get a lot of space in the tap, but it was awesome with the kicking, I thought. Ben Young's off the bench. I thought he had a bad game for being else. I thought it slowed down a lot. Um, JVP, very quick. It's quite snappy. Got done like a kipper for um, uh, Van der Merwe's try, but once he's in full flow, all bets are off, so I'm not blaming him for that. I thought he had a good game with the boot as well. Um, Coley coming off the bench. Um, how good was it? Was it? I think you tweeted it uh, on our account, didn't you? Yeah, just for, literally within minutes from coming on, gets a scrum, gets a penalty. See you later, boys. Yeah, thanks for coming. Uh, uh, he was he unbelievable. They were really, really good. He ridiculously got some stick for their last try, saying that oh, he was slow in defence or something like that. He he already made two tackles in that sequence of play, and he got up and pressured the fly half, and the ball had basically gone past. People said, "Oh, look at him jogging back." It was like balls on the other side of the field, lads. What are you on about? Yeah, I mean, it's twenty yards away from the play. I mean, it's not his fault that. Like Scotland had identified the space was uh, was down on the wing, and guess what? They shifted it to the wing. Yeah. I mean, it's nothing to do with Coley in that that respect. No, I thought to be fair, I thought all of our boys, Bar Youngsy, unfortunately, had held themselves up. I thought Lenny, unfortunately, was was a um, he just had one of those days where games, yeah, yeah, he had one of those days where he was his decision making was off as well. Like there was once we had an advantage and he tried some ridiculous kick over the shoulder which basically just booted it dead and you I was thinking what are you doing mate and that was really Ollie, frustrating Ollie Chesham however yeah I was saving him till last boom and quite he, rightly so I mean take he's it away a, take it away well he's arrived hasn't he I you know I saw I think you've done the Tom Croft comparison before I've done the Brody Retallick comparison before I think he just call him Ollie Chesham now because Firstly, his brother had a cracking game for the under-20s in what was another fantastic game against Scotland, actually, on the uh, opening day the night before. And Ollie, the older Ollie, uh, sorry, the older Chesham, did an absolutely fantastic job in the engine room. Thought he was the best second row on the park, even against some very good Scottish forwards. In the first half in particular, he was just absolutely monstrous. He was burying people. He was um, carrying hard. He, he was sensational. It was sort of a, a statement performance, I felt. I think it's interesting the comments that have um, sort of come out after the game where I think it was Steve that said all the t- he's, when he goes at lock, he's on the tight head side and every tight head prop loves scrummaging in front of Chesham because of the power that he gives. George Cruz is in a similar sort of mind. They always used to say a similar sort of thing about Cruz, about it's almost a joy to prop in front of him because the power he generated just made that, their life Well, Coley easier. said the same about Lavanini as well. It was like having a traction engine behind you. <laughs> I can imagine. Um, it is yeah. a big thing. I think, you know, for, as you, you talk about the scrum almost as a, a front row thing only. Actually, it is an eight-guy unit where all 
parts of it have to be well drilled and they all have to pull yeah pull, pull their weight ironically because they push they have to push their weight but someone like Chesson, i think you know courtney laws is possibly knocking on door to be back fit they talking him around him playing lock i think Chesson's almost putting himself where he's undroppable especially after that yeah. I, would, I would be gutted for Chess if he's gutted after that performance if he's dropped after that performance yeah, so yeah yes. no, i agree um Really interesting that point about the front row and you know the the requirement for good second row scrummaging because obviously remember the World Cup final when we were getting hosed in the scrum and Coley was getting all the blame for it and obviously he was having difficulties but all of a sudden you swapped your Mako for Marla and you brought Cruz on behind Cole instead of Laws and all of a sudden we actually started winning scrum penalties so again you say well if it was Coley's fault the, the issue would have continued instead you actually brought on a sc- Strong scrummaging loose head and a strong scrummaging tight head lock, if that's a thing. And yes. effectively, um, you know, it, it resolved the scrummaging issue. So goes to show, like you say, it's not just the front row. Now, should we just go quickly talk a little bit about the, I suppose, the, the lesser spotted Ollie Hassel Collins made his England debut, did okay. Um, didn't get a lot of ball in space like we wanted to, but I thought he, he was quite promising in all fairness. So decent debut, very difficult game. Uh we think that that announcement might not be a million miles away. No, we think um, Irish, interestingly, have, have tweeted a review. As we go to record, whatever time it is now, half seven in the evening, Irish have um, tweeted a sort of a hint of um, a new signing to come. It might be a Hassel Collins uh, replacement. It might not. Um, but we think there's, there's, there's Irish are getting closer to... Um, finding their replacement if i was a betting man i would um wouldn't be surprised if someone like tom collins went from northampton to irish and that would complete the transfer chain in a in effect seabrook has gone from gloucester to northampton collins goes from northampton to irish hassle collins goes from irish to leicester i think that's the link in chain or the domino effectively i think once that's done um and i think once that's processed I think at that point you'll start seeing um, some announcements being made. So yeah, I don't. I think we're closer to that being announced for Leicester. Okay, well let's go to the least surprising reveal in history in our pro era ultimate fifteen. The battles for the number four shirt. It was between Leo Cullen and Martin Johnson. Elliot, what are the scores on the doors? I don't think anyone's going to be too surprised to know that uh, Martin Johnson won. Uh, and with 97% of the vote, a fairly clear, <laughs> uh, a fairly substantial victory for, for the great man. Um, I think that's to be fair. I think it's just a testament to how good Jono was. I don't think it's a slight against Leo. No, I think he's done well to get 3%, to be honest. And that is not insulting Leo. That's just because he's against Jono, for goodness sake. And I think a lot of people put in a vote for Leo because they wanted to give him the credit which he's due uh, if that makes sense there was a very there was quite a few comments with which i agreed with where they went i'm making sure he doesn't get nilled Do you know, and i think that's yeah, a very fair, that's fair yeah i think it's very fair i don't think it's any two good players one's just an ultimate club legend so <laughs> yeah it is what it is on that one but yeah Jono, um as you'd expect toddles off into the uh the pro era four shirt and quite rightly so um so that's a really it's two each now for the uh um, for the team so we've got a Yurtzer and Montoya and Dan Cole 
uh, in the front row with Jono in the four shirt. And to complete the second row, I think it's a very interesting one because I think this is really well matched, actually, which is the complete opposite. We have got Ben Kay for the homegrown versus Fritz van Heerden for the overseas. Ah, Fritz. Yes. Uh, van Heerden was, I suppose, one of our first big overseas signings that I can remember when I was watching anyway. And <laughs> I suppose some of our more recent listeners may not remember Fritz van Heerden and that's where I think that perhaps Ben Kay will get a clear advantage on it but van Heerden was a really really physical South African second row um, which won't surprise anyone <laughs> he really sort of helped make our pack dominant in the late 90s uh, fantastic around player great line out operator as well and in many ways quite similar to Ben Kay so it, they would be on the pitch I think they would be very very evenly matched from what I, this is a bit before my era, but from what I can understand from listening to you and to reading other people's comments, he almost transitioned Tigers from uh, Matt Poole of the amateur era into Ben Kay. Um, That's right. Of the, of the pro era and did a very good job in terms of partnering John O and being that sort of link man um, in the second row. So I think, you know, both in their own right are very good candidates. I think. I think Ben Kay probably nudges it. Um, he was at the club for longer as well, and in his own right, right is a club legend. So I think, again, I, I think they would be evenly matched on the pitch, but I don't think they're going to be evenly matched on the score. No, I, if it, for me, um, if I'm going to be voting, I would place my vote for Ben Kay, uh, but that's no slight on Fritz. That's just that I didn't get to see Fritz play, and I saw Ben Kay play. So <laughs> that's it. There's, there's my logic. I like the way Ben Kay developed his game. He was sort of like a line-out-y athletic carrier in the first part of his career. Towards the end, he was a really solid defensive player, re- put it, always put in big shifts. And I remember like some real bone-jarring uh, tackles that he put in at Welford Road. So I like the way that he developed his game as he got older as well. And yes, he sometimes annoys me with how anti-Leicester he is on his commentary now, where he feels like he's trying to counter any suspicion of Leicester bias but I still think he's a very smart and switched on pundit. So uh, I've got a lot of time for Ben Kay. So I think that's where my vote will be going as well. As always, Elliot will pop up a vote uh, probably tomorrow and you'll have a few days to think about it and twiddle your finger over the right name. Okay, as I mentioned earlier, we're very, very happy to be joined by... A bit of a throwback to one of our earliest episodes, actually. It's Mr. Sam Lana with, dare I say it, a tidier beard than I last remember. Uh, and, and an exceptional shirt as well. He's back and he is the man who we know he talks so much sense on Twitter. He does these fantastic rugby threads and his knowledge of stats is pretty much unsurpassed. So, Sam, thank you so much for coming back on. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure. And uh, how, what are you up to? How's things been over the last year or so? Still avidly listening to the Leicester Tigers rugby fans podcast, I assume. Absolutely. Well, I, I have a I have a mate who listens, uh, Arthur Hunt, uh, who is a big Leicester Tigers fan, um, and so so he fills me in on the uh, on, on the key bits. So uh, he'll be uh, he'll be enjoying this. Um, but uh, but yeah yeah, I mean they, I must admit uh, this probably isn't a thing to admit at the start of this podcast, but uh, I always was a they were my bogey team, Leicester, because as a Scarlets fan, um, I've still never seen Leicester lose. Um, and I've seen Leicester play quite a few times. 
so it was it, it's always been a slightly difficult matchup but can we get you a season ticket <laughs> if, you've, if you've if you've never seen us lose can, can we bondi if you're listening can we arrange for Sam to have a season ticket? I think that's that's our cheat code. For next I'd be year. delighted. Forget who head, yeah, forget who our next head coach is. Get Sam in. La- <laughs> vote Larder. We, we, had, we had some great games against the Scarlets, was it, around like 2011, 2012 and stuff. You, you had like Regan, you had that ridiculous yeah. back line with Regan King in. Ben Youngs was at that point where he'd just come on the scene and he was like electric around the fringes and stuff. Um, yeah. I think didn't he get like a bollocking in the press because we played you know, like the um away in Wales and Ben Young scored a try away like we got a turnover and he scarped down sort of the near hand touchline as he watched it on telly he scored and he got up and gave gave the crowd a bit of shh, quiet down and then the hashtag rugby values come out or actually the lesser seen Welsh hashtag rugby values crowd <laughs> come out they're, they're not very often seen came out and said no. it was unacceptable yeah, no, it's, it's it's always unacceptable when someone on the opposite team does it. Do you see Finn Russell um, to Owen Farrell? <laughs> I love that kind of stuff. I absolutely I, love that kind of stuff. I love it. The annoying thing is they've done it like the, you know the last few years, and I keep saying, "Wow, oh, this is great!" Because when we eventually beat them, we'll get to throw it back. The only thing is, we keep having to wait more and more fucking years. Finn will be retired by the time we finally beat them. There won't be anyone to run noses in it would be all that's the thing isn't it it's like it's like trying to beat the all blacks and uh and we're not comparing sorry i'm gonna we're not comparing scotland to the all blacks it's not quite got, yet. We're, we're going too far not quite <laughs> yet but specifically with like you know richard mccall is a person you just love to kind of love it in their face but <laughs> you just never never beat them well let's go and talk a little bit about i suppose the use of data and things like that they say we talked just before we hit record that We've had some uh, energetic arguments with certain characters on Twitter before who don't see the value in data, but Elliot wrote a fantastic piece, which we can always plug again, about effectively how Leicester Tigers perhaps are, are at the forefront of using this money ball approach to looking at data and statistics in terms of uh, how to identify players that might be suitable. It's obviously not the only criteria they use, but it is increasingly becoming perhaps a very good indicator. Um, can you sort of give us a high-level summary of how clubs use that data and you know, perhaps, yeah, what they prioritise. Yeah, so I think there's it, it varies a little bit how how clubs are using data. So specifically, um, teams will typically have about three levels of player that they're trying to pick up. So they'll have the big the big names, kind of, you know, the Pollards who you probably don't need the data on because you've seen enough of them. You, you know, it's not like a a money ball pickup. You just you're splashing the cash and you're picking someone up uh, of that caliber. Same with Finn Russell going to Bath, for example. Then you've got the second tier who are players that probably we've all heard of, although maybe they're not like the top of the level or they're not, not like the top of the chain. Um, and then you've got the third tier who are probably where the, the stats and data are going to be of most importance. They're the guys that you're not necessarily expecting them to be massive contributors but you are you are trying to find you you try to get those margins. So you might be trying to um, pick someone up who can be a say a third choice scrum half who perhaps you know Ben Youngs or you know whoever might get injured and then they suddenly are the first choice scrum half. And so um, that's typically kind of what teams are looking for. And as I say, that the big impact there is is that the, those third choice. Um, or the third string of of players that you're picking up. So typically, what you're looking for is is stuff below the 
the headline stats. So um, generally speaking, the more tries you score, the more inflated your value is going to be. Um, or the, I guess the more inflated your monetary value is going to be. But it's not necessarily the case that your actual value is also going to be inflated in the same terms. So typically, I mean, tries are quite an easy one to to think about. So there is a value in, in scoring tries. Like it's not, some people see it as just, you know, it just happens to be where you're stood and you get the ball and you score the try. It's much more complicated than that. However, um, there is a lot of outside elements that contribute to that. And not everyone is who deserves to score tries does score tries. And sometimes people who don't deserve to score tries do score tries. So you've got to try and decouple the a player's value from them scoring tries because, you know, uh, someone scores loads of, you know, someone scores 10 tries last season they don't get to take those over to to you in the new season. And so you have to work out how valuable that player is because it might be that you sign them and and you've taken them out of the environment that, that allowed them to score tries and you suddenly got someone who who just isn't very productive, which yeah, we can all think of kind of people who've been signed to suddenly. It's like the differentiate you, you've benefited from being in that system. Effectively, you know, you're on the end of that system at the sharp end, so you score the tries from that. But moving them into another system where they might have a different role, it might not be quite so um yeah, quite so successful. Probably the reason why I don't score too many tries anymore, actually, is just the system is wrong. Exactly, same for me. Yeah, uh, I just going to very quickly because one of the things that you like to talk a lot about um, on Twitter, and but being completely honest, I always like it. But this is the, your stuff. This is the one thing that always slightly loses me is the try equivalents. Yes. Would you like to give us the rundown of what try equivalents are? Because this is perhaps, it, 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 correct me if I'm wrong, a way of differentiating a little bit between that arbitrary oh how many tries have they scored, and actually the try equivalents is perhaps a little bit more nuanced in determining a player's value. Absolutely, yeah. So a good way of looking at this is if people work in marketing, they'll probably be familiar with this, which is a thing called last touch attribution, which is um, if you're buying a product um, and you're online and you see all those pop-up ads or you see the you know the ads on the on whatever website you go on, um, there's a thing called last touch attribution, which is basically whoever showed you the last ad um, gets credit for you having bought the item. Um, so a good way of thinking about this is um, if you go on holiday and you get a taxi to the airport, you um, go to the airport, you have, you know, you, you sit at Yosushi or whatever, and then you go on the plane, you fly, you get to the other side, you get on a coach, you go to your hotel, and then you pay all the money to the man who opens the hotel door for you because he's the person who, you know, he's, he's the last person you saw. He's the person who kind of enables your holiday. And so that's kind of the same thing with uh, with with tries, really. So if you look at something like um, the Sean O'Brien try for the Lions, um, you know, Liam Williams makes all those people miss, and then I think he passes it to Jonathan Davis, uh, or maybe to Alec Daly, and then he passes it to Jonathan Davis. They each beat people. Jonathan Davis carries for kind of 30 metres, gets tackled, pops it to Sean O'Brien, who goes over for the try. Now, in that case, Sean O'Brien gets entire credit for everything that's happened in that move. Um, and he obviously deserved credit for being there and for working hard and for getting on the and the end of it. But no one would realistically say that he deserves credit for all of the previous 80 metres of, of try that happened before he got the ball. And so what try equivalence does is it, it gives you credit for, for scoring tries, but it also gives you credit for beating defenders, um, for carrying the ball for, for metres um, and for uh, line breaks. Uh, and also potentially for offloads as well, depending on 
how I calculate it. But um, all those things, you can essentially quite easily work out how many of those uh, score a try. So about 200 metres, a try scored for about every 200 metres that you carry. So if you carry for 200 metres in a match and you don't score the try, you still get one try equivalent because you've you kind of generated the same amount of, of value as a try. Um, and so a good way of looking at that is usually the people who uh, the people who have the highest try equivalents are the people you would expect to be the best wingers. So last season it was you know Max Malings, Ollie Hassel Collins, um, I think Faye Stewart was doing quite well up there as well. Uh, Alex Mitchell, you know people like that who you think yeah they're pretty good the carries of the ball. But what you're looking for are the people who have a low number of actual tries scored, but a high number of try equivalents, because it's a bit like shots on goal. You know, if you're making loads of shots on goal, um, there's an element of luck there that's probably meaning you're not, you know, that you might not be scoring. Um, and so, if you do believe it's luck, and I, I do believe that is luck, then you should get the person who's just keeping on having those shots because at some point it'll it'll come good and they'll score a lot of tries. Um, so that in a kind of in a, a, I guess a large nutshell is what try equivalence is. If you look at rugby and rugby, like all sports, has a lot of data attached to it, especially in the modern world. Clubs, all clubs to a certain extent, will use data as part of their recruitment um, policies. Some use it more than others, and some use it better than others. In terms of, in your opinion, what sets a club? apart as being a good user of the data compared to someone who's a bad user of the data? So I think the key thing is is in what you look at. So um, what a lot of teams will do is they will have an idea about the player that they want. And so it won't be stats that they're looking for. They'll be saying, and it will be as simple as this, kind of, we want a big South African second row. Um, and then so you go out, you have a look at the pool of big South African second rows and you suggest the ones that, you think that they can pick up. Um, but the problem there is you're not actually looking for the big South African second row. You're looking for someone who can hit luck. So you're looking for someone who can uh, catch line at ball. You're looking for something, someone who can make tackles and maybe occasionally make some decent carries. And so if you widen the net and you go, okay, well, the person who I'm looking for is going to appear in the stats. Um, and I think this, this often, just a, sl- a slight tangent here, but People will often say this, you know, on Twitter, if I, if I talk about stats, they'll say there's an intangible thing. Yeah, we can't measure it, but there's some intangible thing, which is um, which means that someone is good. Um, well, th- that can't really be the case. So if someone is 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 really good, if they're a really good player, it will show up somewhere. It might be that they don't score loads of tries, but they will be good somewhere. That's some stat that you collect. Um and I don't really agree that there's like an intangible thing that there's this like magic in the air because if they were, it, it would appear somewhere. And so the the teams who work well have quite an open mind about what they're looking for, and they say we want a we want the best second row available to us, um, and that might be a big South African, it might be a Georgian, it might be someone from the Australian um, you know trophy, um, it might be someone playing in the URC, it might be could even be someone Welsh. Country. Could you even be, dare I say it, someone Welsh? Um, yeah, and so and I think that open-mindedness and letting the data guide you, um, it helps massively, you know, that that kind of 
you just broaden your net and you've got better chance of finding someone in there. How um, granular is the detail, to use the word Elliot uh, very kindly wrote down for me, when <laughs> uh, he was putting some of the questions together, but it's a really good word, I think, granular, because you always think with the data, again, Six Nations, their website has done a pretty good job of pulling together some like really nice headline stats, you know, for example. Meters kicked, I quite liked, because I was looking at the trying to find the positives of the England-Scotland game, and I thought, I'll tell you what, Freddie Stewart was key to winning the ter- territory battle, and England had 71% possession, and Stewart's boot was like a siege gun all game, and it was absolutely enormous. It's kind of unsexy thing he doesn't get credit for, but he made more meters with the boot than anyone else. Um, so that kind of stuff is great. But then when you, you're looking, I suppose, at the business point of view for a club and you're looking for players who are going to add something, like stuff like metres after contact, I assume, is obviously going to be a big one as well. But how, into how much depth can you go? Or is it almost customizable to what the, I suppose, clients want? Yeah, so um, there will be often two ways of collecting data. So one will be, um, you know, Companies like Oval or Opta, what they're collecting and, and you know, what you can buy. Um, and then the other thing will be what clubs collect themselves. So typically clubs don't just double up what what those providers do. They they will do their own stuff and it can be really granular levels. So typically coaches will have very clear ideas of, of certain KPIs that they want to hit. So if you're not in business, it's just like a key performance indicator. So, for example, you might say... Um, we want to have 60% of our bucks under three, three, percent, uh, three seconds. So that's really simple. You can just measure that. And at the end of the game, you can say tick or cross on that, that kind of thing. So typically they'll be collecting that kind of data um, and they can collect uh, data on individual players. So a coach might have a really clear idea of what they want, of what role they're trying to uh, get someone for. So, um, you know, if you were a... Um, a winger playing for Exeter, for example, uh, your job is very different than a winger playing for Queen. So Exeter carry a lot in the midfield. Um, or Stormers, I guess, would be a good example in the URC. The Stormers basically don't really let their wingers off the wing. So um, you need to have a clear idea of what, what the role is that you want to do. And then once you've got, got that, you can then really kind of fashion the data into what you want to see. I think one thing to be aware of which which does come back um quite a lot and which or which has come up even quite a lot is um the the context of data so there's there's no there's no data that's incorrect so people hate things like meters carried um and they say you know it's it's easy as a winger you just catch ball and you got 40, 30 meters there before you even the fullback it is always the one that gets like a big head start aren't they exactly yeah and you know generally they they do carry for a lot of meters but if you look at the context of it, you know, if you compare just fullbacks with just fullbacks, it's useful. If you compare the fullback with a prop, it's not that useful. Um, but but interestingly, or perhaps not interestingly, but for, if you look at try equivalents, if you look at the percentage of, of them generated by meters carried, you'd expect that fullbacks would generate a load of their um, try equivalents by meters carried, but it's not really the case. So actually it's props who generate the vast majority of their tri-equivalents through metres carried, and that's simply because they don't beat many people, they don't score many tries, and they don't have many line breaks. So if those things aren't there, they just they have quite a lot of, of the percentages It comes from the metres carried. Um, but I guess to, to, answer, to answer the question, in terms of granularity, you can be very granular. Um, 
but the more granular the more granular you get the more um kind of natural fluctuations can play a part so rugby seasons despite what they might feel like especially if you're playing in them they're not very long so if someone's playing um you know 17 games or, or let's say 20 20 22 games that's that's there's not many people who are going to play 22 games across the season and so even if you just look at those people there's going to be huge kind of natural fluctuations so um if you miss five tackles in one game then that's going to have a big impact on your overall tackle success rate even if you're making loads of tackles um and so things like that they they do play a part and so uh, the key is not just to go the data say that therefore it's, it's accurate is it but is to have a little bit more nuance and, and perhaps taking some of the, um, the video yeah the context that yeah. you'll you'll get from the video and get from just what you know as well like some things that seem unrealistic probably are unrealistic elliot can i give you what i reckon would be like steve borthwick's one if he was still coaching tigers or it might just be any tigers coach part of the ethos i reckon if they could get the statistic for it average time player spends on the floor after making a tackle um or yeah, how quick they get up on their feet. I reckon that yeah, you know, the recycling, the recycling, recycling limit, yeah, isn't it? Ex- exactly. Well, how how ba- basically quickly are you reloaded back in the defensive line? Because the whole thing about Leicester ethos was effort. You, you're up quickly, and see some players take even you measuring it in you know fractions of a second. I just part of me wouldn't be surprised if you get a list of all possible players. They're like, right now, Phil, remove anyone who you know t- is on the floor for more than one and a half seconds after making a tackle, and they say, right. I could, I could almost see us saying we're not interested in anyone who doesn't make that extra effort to get in the line, that sort of thing. Yeah, that is quite common. So that that's um Oh, I thought uh, it's been really original and niche. I was about to flog no, that to tigers. Never mind. It's not um it's not uh, it's not common in the in the in the you know the, the, the usual world. But um yeah, so that's that's what they call bounce rate. So that is um like it's pretty much exactly like you say, how, how long do players spend off their feet? Um, and the the slower that is, the, the the less a lot of coaches will will want to see that player. Um, so yeah, it, I know it's something that that Wales um, across various age groups are focused on um, getting that kind of bounce rate speed up. Um, something you'll you know those kind of down ups and things like that are, are, are a good way of of kind of practicing that. And then uh, typically that will be looked at during the match to see how on track you are on, on that particular metric but yeah as you say it's, it's it is a really good idea it's not something that we often talk about in the in kind of the public arena i tried to pull our tight head prop off the floor um uh, play for the third team um to try and help him rebound so he told me to fuck off we we're defending <laughs> our own line yeah zero he, he was chilling out to be fair so it was my fault yeah it's, it's, it's i i would not like to see the numbers for the for some lower level um uh, teams when you're looking at, um, especially around player recruitment, say, for example, I always equivalent, I always use the example, it's like a funnel. The data system is effectively the funnel. You start with as wide a, um, a pool as possible and you narrow it down, narrow it down, and narrow it down until you get three, five, however many choices and you work your way through that. Say, for example, you funneled it down and you've got a choice between two players for, I don't know, a loose head prop. Yeah. One, plays in, one plays in the URC, one plays in the top 14, but their stats are fairly equivalent. How, what weighting or what can you do in terms of if you're trying to work out who is the best player um, for your team, 
what weighting or what can you give around the different leagues to be able to give you a more informed decision about what player is the actual better choice for you as a club? Yeah, that's a great question. It's a very difficult question to answer. Um, so typically, well, so one way you could look at that is um, top 14 generally and the Pro U2, French leagues in, in, in general, generally have slightly less ball in play time than uh, than the URC and the and the Premiership. So it's usually about a minute and a half less ball in play, which doesn't sound like much, but if you imagine that um, a lot of it's less to the recovery they show, so or less to exercise they show. So if you if you like if you have to work for thirty seconds, then you get a minute off, and you have to keep doing that all game. It makes a big difference if suddenly you have to work for twenty seconds, and then you get a minute off, and across a whole game, that's probably about what it is. So that minute and a half, it'll it'll just kind of it'll be those little segments each time of just not having to work quite as hard. So one thing that you might want to look at there is is how the what the loose head stats are on a per minute ball in play time. Um, you might find that they come out a lot better if you compare if they compare quite favorably on the surface. They might compare really favorably if you then do it on a per ball in play minute. Um, but you also have to be aware that um, you know, are they going to be able to hack it fitness wise, or are they going to have an immediate impact? Um, if you bring them in and, and suddenly they've got this extra um, extra exercise, they have to do more than training because it's going to be more realistic. Um, and I've worked with someone who went from the URC to the Pro D2, um, and he was saying that it, it's really noticeable. Uh, and also someone who went the opposite way, and both said it's it's really noticeable just the difference, even if the numbers actually are quite quite marginal. Um, but back to the kind of more general question of how do you compare the leagues? It's really difficult because um, there's not there's not really like a power ranking system which you can apply. So if we look at Europe, you'd say top 14 is 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 better than probably any other league in terms of how well they do in Europe. Um, but how much of that is... Less so this season, randomly. It's all, yeah. it's all URC. The Ospreys out of nowhere have become a dominant scrummaging force. It, absolutely bonkers yeah it's a bizarre it's a bizarre season and also i think it, it, it illustrates how marginal a lot of this stuff is it can very quickly change um like you say you know no one would have thought that uh europe wasn't just going to be a shootout between say clermont and and and, and uh leinster but it's it, it's not not turning out to be that and so i think that i think it, i think it's hard i don't think there's a, a good way that teams have yet found to actually compare um, tournament to tournament. Um, I think it's just those little margins looking at things like ball and play time and looking at, um, you know, competitiveness of matches. And, and you can you can potentially look at players' GPS data. The problem with that is only if they share it. Um, it's not kind of, that's not freely available. Um, but that'll give you a good idea about how much work they're doing. But in terms of what opposition they're going to face, I think that's difficult, and you'll have to probably look at previous people who've made the transition. But there's not that many, really. Um, I mean, we, we're probably going to have a few this season, um, guys going from the Prem to the top 14, and uh, you'll be able to bit, make a bit of a comparison there. I like the, the... I think, similar to that, the challenge, not just between, sort of, you say, crossing over from elite leagues, where you've got 
different styles of play and different standards. But coming up from whether it's championship or obviously our own favourite Leicester Tigers from the uh, shoot shield, you know what they yeah. play in Australia. Yeah, you've got Harry Potter and Guy Porter. They're one of them, whom is an England international, one of whom probably isn't a million miles away uh, from being in the reckoning for it. Um, two outstanding players, and you know, I suppose. I'm not going to make you repeat yourself there, but it's just that just adds on, I suppose, an extra layer of nuance that you've got to apply to the data. And ultimately, it's still a risk and it's a punt as to whether you're willing to take it. Say, so can they transfer what they do to a, a, a higher level and hope that they've got a, a high ceiling? Yeah, and I think I think that's a, a key point there is, is kind of the ceiling and the floor. So a lot of teams have to make the decision about whether, you know, you could pick someone up who's 18, who's played very little rugby, but has been impressive in the games that you've seen. Now, their ceiling is big or, or high, but their floor is is very low as well because they, they could just have had two great games and then be completely rubbish when you when you pick them up. Um, or they could be the next star and be amazing. But there's a, there, there's a huge gulf between those two possible outcomes. And so you might waste your money or you might get someone good. And so if you compare it to like uh, investments, I guess, you could go right down the middle and go, I don't want to lose my money, but I don't, I don't, I know I'm not going to make loads of money. And you just get people who you're seeing enough of that you, you're pretty confident of where their floor is and you're pretty confident of where their ceiling is. Um, and you know their ceiling is not going to be like world beater and their floor is not going to be complete rubbish. And you just pick players up in that, in that kind of band. And players tend to do better in sort of, higher class environments anyway it's yeah. even, even at, sort of at any level than say the levels i've played at, i was doing okay up for one team then i actually moved up a couple of divisions and i found i was playing better at a higher standard just because you're in that environment so it's interesting all this stuff you have to balance now andrea pinchin the tigers ceo is uh was talking about using elliot what's the name of the company they use um, we use oval insights oval yeah. insights um to obviously utilize data and they're using it to go hunting for a head coach um don't know what happened to the last one he just seemed to wander off mid-season strange that <laughs> but, um and she was obviously not particularly specific in fact she was uh quite uh mysterious in saying you know there's certain things that you know they're looking for um there's an in joke at Leicester Tigers unfortunately the last time they did a worldwide search they came back with a load of names uh and the board went no it doesn't matter we want Matt O'Connor instead um so so we're hoping we're not going to get the same thing but what kind of things do you think might be on the Leicester Tigers coaching uh hit list uh in terms of data yes good question so I actually work in a freelance capacity for oval insights so I should be able to answer this but I don't know who have they interviewed yeah (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) who's on the shortlist tell us everything yeah Yeah, I I I don't know I think I think the, the challenge with with coaches is probably quite a well-known one, which is how much is the coach and how much is the team? So Pep Guardiola, if we can just jump into the other sport for the moment, um, he's coached Bayern, best team in Germany, Barcelona, best team in Spain, and Man City, best or you know, potentially illegally most well-funded yeah. <laughs> team in, in England. And so There's always a thought of everyone with Pep, no, I could do that. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Could you just walk in? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Like like it's a football manager save where you 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 edit it so you've got a billion a billion pounds and then you see how well you do. Um and how much of that is the skill and how much of it is 
is is him. And there's a, a potential way of working this out in football. Well, also in rugby, where in football the the strength, the uh, financial clout of a club, the the wages of all the players put together, is a good indicator of where they're going to finish. And so, if you can outperform that wage bill, then you you are presumably that's on you. That's your benefit, uh, or that's your um, success as a coach. And if you underperform that, then that's your your lack of success. Um, you can kind of make comparisons where. What, how good will the team one year and then what happened when their coach disappeared for whatever reason? And you can kind of see, compare the last year to the previous year with the coach and and kind of go, well, how good were they one year to the other? I think that for, as I say, I don't I don't know what, what Leicester will be looking for, but I suspect there might be certain things that they've identified as... Um, Kind of KPIs that that Borthwick might be delivering in terms of playing style, and I suspect that they might be wanting to look for coaches who have a similar playing style. Um, the challenge, though, and this is where I think you can get into difficulty with with data, is that data is is fantastic if you're playing fantasy manager or you know fantasy football, or if you're playing football manager or whatever, because you don't the players just do what you say and and you just pumping the algorithm and they just do what what you want whereas as chatting to a player the, on the weekend um who plays in the, in the urc and he was saying that uh, i was talking about kind of innovations in rugby and why don't teams do these things that seem to be beneficial but are a bit unusual and he was saying that a lot of it is kind of player ego in that you've got this player who maybe is not a good defender and you go, Oh, the innovation is let's hide him. You know, let's hide our fly half on the wing or, or, or whatever from, from line outs so that he doesn't have to be the first defender. But a lot of fly halves will say, I know I, I don't want it. I'm going, I'm going to do it. I'm just going to stand there. Even if they get beaten or even if they're not very good. And so, um, there's a lot of that personal management that comes into it. And probably as a coach, that is at least 50% of your success, if not more. Um, it's not really how much you know the game, it's how you can talk to your players. Um, I think that's something that probably wouldn't get picked up on the data, but uh, if you knew roughly a team's salary cap or wage bill, you could probably um, see who outperformed that that wage bill, which would give you a good indication of, who, of who's the better coach. Looking at last sort of last one for me is... The age-old sort of question whenever you bring up data in, um, especially around recruitment, because it's quite a new and a modern way of looking at things. The obvious, the, the, the counterpoint is always, well, I can see with my eyes. I know that that's a good player. You don't, I don't need data to tell me. Now, I'm a big believer in the data in terms of recruitment because I saw how it works at Leicester City from 2013, 2012 through to 2018, 2019, when the data was prevalent as part of their recruitment um, thing I saw it work all the way through and Leicester were very much market leaders in their in their recruitment Brighton for example are now again using data as part of their uh, recruitment and again they're storming it as part of their recruitment stuff so I'm a big believer in in the data and in the using the analytics as part of your recruitment thing the famous story obviously about Leicester City is obviously they used all the data but Briad Mares is the classic I guess rags to riches story signed for 400 grand and then was sold for 65 million yet there was never the story about Riyadh was he was never picked up on the data 
Steve Walsh was the scout, went to go see another winger who was on the data list, who actually had a bit of a stinker. And Riyad Mahrez, in that same game, had an absolute stormer. And we decided to buy Riyad um, off the back of it. And we checked out his data off the back of his performance and it, it all checked out. So I guess this is a very long-winded way of saying what's, you know, the counterpoint to all of this data that we advocate and advocate for is I can see it with my eyes. What's your sort of counterpoint to that, I guess, in terms of benefit, using the benefits of data to those who will just go, yeah, I know that I can see it. Yeah. So um, the, 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 in some ways it, it's true. And I have some, I have kind of, um, I think people often use it as like a gotcha of kind of, I can see it with my own eyes. All you're doing is, is, is just kind of irrelevant. The, the problem is, is, is that data is a, rep- is a representation of what's actually happening. So it, it would be weird if the person who scores all of the tries, you know, like let's have a look who, who last season. So, you know, Caden Murley, for example, or, or George McGuigan, for example, Actually, yeah, let's go with Cade Murley. So he's got 11 tries last season. It'd be weird if he wasn't also near the top of the try equivalence charts because it's just a representation of what's happening on the pitch. The problem is, is that you can get easily misled by, by um, what you're seeing. So, for example, if you watch a game and you see, um, you can have, you know, maybe you're cooking or you're doing something else whilst you're watching it. And you pop your head in and someone gets absolutely munched in a tackle. That can really stay in your head and you go, oh, he was a bit weak as a carrier. Um, the same thing, actually, you know, um, old Jonathan Davis at, at halftime in the Wales Island game said that the issue was that Wales were kicking too much. Um, now, not necessarily something to, to pay a huge amount of attention to, but, you know, in that situation, his eyes have, have deceived him because even just look at the long embers that Wales weren't kicking too much. Um, but and, and if you dig into it a bit more, they were kicking well. So it's very easy to be deceived by what your eyes are seeing. Um, and if, if you know, the, the numbers aren't going to suddenly shock you. But for example, um, I've just pulled up the try equivalents for last year. So um, top is Ollie Hassel-Collins, second is Caden Murley, Tylon Green, third, Esther Hazen, fourth, Mitchell, fifth, Naholo, sixth, Thomas Flaherty, seventh, Mailings, eighth, Adam Lagwang, ninth, and Van der Merwe, tenth. So of those, O'Flaherty, Van der Merwe, and Tylon Green scored uh, five or fewer tries. Um, Tom de Glanville is, I think, twelfth in there. So those, you know, you wouldn't look at those people and go, they had a great season, you know. Uh, O'Flaherty, he had an amazing season. He scored five tries. But, you know, when you actually look into the data, they did have a good season. Um, and so I think that, the, yeah, it's a long-winded way, basically, of saying the, the data is going to reflect broadly what an expert sees. You know, if you're a prof- professional coach, the data probably isn't going to be a massive shock to what you think is being shown. But, the the marginal differences in those things that you you incorrectly remember and you undervalue some player or you overvaluing other player. And if you just back your back your gut and go, yeah, we're gonna put hundred grand on him because he's great. And it turns out that you've just you've just believed the hype or you've seen a couple of good performances and it's made you made you think he's amazing. You know, that 
that is is a huge difference because if you if you splash a load of cash on someone who's actually a bit rubbish um then that's cash you can't use on someone who's who's good and if you tie them down to like a two or three year, year contract because you think they're amazing you can end up in a real bad spot because you just didn't bother to check well it, it sort of raises confirmation bias doesn't it it's a bit of a safety net but then again on the other side of that you can get caught up on the numbers and forget to actually sort of apply the other it just goes show you need to uh, apply them both in tandem. Sam, thank you so much for dropping by again. It's it's a real treat and always a bit of an eye-opener to um, to listen to you talk about stuff and what goes on behind the scenes. It's really, really interesting. Do you want to tell everyone uh, a little bit uh, about your Twitter handle so you can uh, go and uh, give yourself a bit of a plug and, and anything else you've got going? Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you very much for having me. Um, yeah, you can have a look at uh, at Sam L stands up, so L just the just the letter there uh, on Twitter. Um, I also write stuff on the URC, so you can go there and have a look. Uh, Rugby World, um, and uh, hopefully just going to start doing some bits on Rugby Pass as well. So um, I'll be spreading uh, those things. The all evil over. corporate world rugby machine has swallowed you up. You're yeah, a company. You're a company. We've all got to make now. money. <laughs> yeah, I've, I'm, I've, I've signed a contract saying I can't criticise certain other uh, writers there, so it'll be a, it, it'll be a, it'll be fun. I'm looking forward to it, but uh, I do expect some kind of some pushback when I uh, when I come out because I haven't been necessarily uh, always positive about everything they put out. Brilliant. Cheers, Beatty. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. brings us to the end of this week's podcast thank you very much for listening and if anyone is impatiently waiting holding wads of 20 pound notes waiting to sponsor me for my tough mother which i mentioned last week which will be running in aid of the four ed foundation uh the reason i've not put up the just giving page yet is not because i've given up which would be entirely in keeping with my level of fitness but it's it's actually because there's an interesting idea that we thought we might be able to do which elliot and i are currently exploring which is where I could do a Tough Mudder on the morning of our last home game, which is against Harlequins, I believe, and I'd do the West London um, Tough Mudder, which would be appropriate. Then basically drive up within the speed limit and watch the game, and then we'd potentially look at trying to do a live show after us, which we're just trying to understand the, I suppose, the practicalities of actually doing that. Unfortunately, I was about to go and click book on it, and then we've realised that actually it's the day of the King's coronation as it stands, 6th of May. So we're waiting to find out if the fixture will be moved to the 7th of May, which would be the Sunday, and in which case I'll probably try and rebook myself in uh, to do the early Sunday morning run instead. But once everything is confirmed, I will uh, get the just giving details up so you can all part with your money that way. Elliot, are you going to be coming down and cheering me on, on early on a Sunday morning? It depends if I'm out on the Saturday night. Brilliant. That's the kind of commitment that I wanted from my uh, self-appointed morale manager. <laughs> no offence, if you're out with me on a Saturday night, that makes it even more entertaining. Oh my God, imagine that. Excellent. Um, <laughs> all right, well, thank you everyone for listening anyway. Uh, please leave us a rating if you like what you've heard. And we'll, anyway, we'll be back next week. <laughs>